Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. Is Andrea ready to talk about this baby yet? (laughs) You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week. Including this week, we have Raja and Isha from the United Kingdom online. So, Ravinder, tell us about your chat room. Yes, we have a lovely chat room, a great group of people, and Raja and Isha are in the chat room as well. Isha is my niece, and Raja is her fiancé, so congratulations to all of that. But yes, the chat room is really cool. Um, I learn lots of stuff from everyone that contributes to the chat room, and if you come and join us, you will too. So come in to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, a quick point of business before we go to today's spotlight. I will be speaking in Philadelphia this weekend at the 41st Annual Yoga Research Society Conference. The subject this year is One Mind. There are a number of excellent speakers, and I encourage you to check it out by going to eldentaylor.com and selecting the yoga banner at the top of the page. Now listen, even if you can't attend, if you live in the area, you're going to be in the area, drop by. I'd love to meet you personally. All right, this week we focus on the subject of character. What character traits are indicative of well-being? In 2004, Martin Seligman and Christopher Peterson published their findings regarding character in the book, Character Strengths and Virtues. They studied 24 character strengths. In a recent study, Scott Barry Kaufman, together with Spencer Greenberg, Susan Cain, and The Quiet Revolution, collected data on 517 folks looking for a correlation between character, as described by Seligman and Peterson, and well-being. They found hope to be the top trait correlated with well-being. I reported on Seligman's work with helpless, hopeless dogs in my book, Choices and Illusions. When Seligman delivered shock to dogs who could not escape the pad that carried the electric shock, he found that even when they were provided with a safe area, an area they could escape to, they just laid there hopelessly and took the shock. In other words, the dogs had learned they were helpless. Indeed, they had learned it so well that they no longer tried to escape. Further, Seligman found that the conditioned animals' immune systems weakened and their will to live diminished. Now, that should come as no surprise to the student familiar with the earlier work of Kurt Paul Richter, for he drowned rats to measure learned helplessness. Richter used both domestic and wild rats and discovered that recently trapped wild rats drowned very quickly. Some simply swam to the top of the bucket, rammed a few times against the walls, bottom of the bucket, and never came up again. They apparently accepted their situation as hopeless and drowned very quickly. Domestic rats did somewhat better, but they too drowned in no more than 15 minutes. Remember that. When Richter 
rescued the rat and held it in his hand for just a few moments, dried it off, and gave it a rest before returning it to the water, the rats could swim for up to 60 hours before drowning. The hand of hope held out an apparent promise of rescue, and that provided the energy of hope. Hope is a powerful force. Repeated studies with animals, as gross as many of them are or have been, have repeatedly demonstrated that learned helplessness is a death sentence. This death sentence may well explain the many human deaths that follow when a person believes their life is without hope. Hopelessness and helplessness is something that often follows tragic events like the Twin Towers or natural catastrophes like tsunamis and hurricanes. Some people are known to just lay down and die for no apparent medical reason. The second highest character trait correlated with well-being is gratitude. The gratitude attitude is all important when it comes to engendering a strong immune and endocrine system. I have suggested on many occasions to my audiences, begin your day with a smile and a thank you, and you will notice the difference very quickly. You see, smiling fools the brain, and it releases those good-feeling neurochemicals, endorphins, and the thank you turns your focus towards the positive aspects of life-encouraging well-being. The third highest character strength positively correlated with well-being is love, love of life. Gratitude encourages love. Hope feeds on love. A real connection with others and with nature spawns a sort of love that finds us loving every moment of our lives. Love excites joy. Unconditional love prospers in an environment where hope, gratitude, and love abide. The bottom line message is, of course, Well-being can arise as much from cognitive events as it can from the physical side of things. I have taught this for years, and indeed, every InterTalk program includes hope, love, and gratitude messages of one sort or another. What's more, we feel this is so important that we offer our InterTalk freedom from feelings of helplessness and hopelessness free upon request to anyone who needs it but cannot afford it. The next three highest-ranking character strengths were found to be prudence, judgment, and self-regulation. So the next time you are thinking about changing anything, think about your character strengths. You can change these as well. You can change your personality if you so choose. The fact is, as you change character traits, you do alter personality one small nudge at a time. This, in turn, can have very positive effects on the body. It all can begin in the mind. Change your self-talk, and you can change your life. Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? You know, I found all of that stuff fascinating. One of the things I want to let everyone know, first of all, sometimes you do report on some pretty horrible experiments, and they're rats, but, you know, rats are alive too, and it was just a really horrible, horrible experiment. But oftentimes these experiments were done in the past, and we have learned from it, and just because you're reporting on it doesn't mean that we endorse them today. And I think sometimes people out there can get confused. I've certainly had some comments from people in the past about that. So I did want to make that really clear that we are not endorsing it. No, that's true, but it would also be... 
even a greater waste of the lives of these animals if the findings that resulted from the research were to be ignored. Absolutely. I totally, totally agree with that. You know, you have to get something out of it, however small that may be. Well, I did have an interesting thought, though, when you reported on that. You know, and when you talk about the hopeless helplessness, do you think that applies to the American public and its attitude towards politics? I'm not touching you know, that. I'm can not. we change anything? Well, is that why lots of people just don't bother voting? That's a different level of hopelessness entirely. <laughs> I'm not even going there. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured a discussion with Joseph Pierce, Joseph Pierce Farrell. I'll get that one out. Jonathan wrote, I really enjoyed your conversation with J.P. Farrell, and I found the video of Sammy amazing. Your shows never fail to inform me. Thank you. Richard wrote, I am glad Farrell is taking steps to prove his results on a rational, evidentiary basis. Lots of people who bring radical innovations don't have the patience to convince others in a calm and calculated way. CB wrote, very interesting show, too bad the guest had to be so slippery on some answers, but I guess that is part of how he has been able to do the work he has for so long. FB wrote, my husband and I are longtime listeners and huge fans of your show. Your show has helped me grow and seek answers for myself. I appreciate your sincerity, your honesty, and your sense of adventure when it comes to exploring the unknown. You've definitely created a spark in me to want to do more for myself spiritually and share my light with the world. Moving on, Thomas wrote this about my new book, Gotcha. Gotcha proved to be an interesting book and an eye-opener for me. It took me three mornings to finish reading this fascinating work. The book is written by Dr. Eldon Taylor, who unabashedly exposes the subtle subordination of our free will by using not-too-subtle techniques. Subconsciously, the public unwittingly succumbs to mind control by the application of elaborate psychological schemes. This changes the face of political marketing, Federal Reserve, climate change, gender change, human condition, and other newsworthy newsworthy issues. It is not a pedantic treatise on social issues, but a must-read, explaining the use of opportunistic psychology to shape unsuspecting minds and to embed certain unconscious thoughts resulting in a gotcha scenario. Read it and see the unseen. I like how he says that. Read it and see the unseen. Okay, and Sheila wrote, I just wanted to let you know I've been listening to your Intertalk title, Millionaire Orbit, every day and evening. One day about two weeks ago, my husband surprised me and took me to the casino, which he rarely does. He gave me $20 for the slots, and I sat at the nickels, and within a few minutes I won the three Sizzler 7s jackpot. We went to the quarter machines, and my husband won 600 quarters. In a little while, we left with $600 in our pockets and only invested 20 I don't want people to think gambling is the way, but I realized if you're in a position of gambling in your life and you either have to pick door A or B after listening to Millionaire Orbit, I believe you will pick the right door. I don't know, Rav, you want to run over to the casino uh, after the show? That sounds good to me. (laughs) All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Subtle Energies, Intentionality, and Consciousness with the legendary Dr. William Tiller. So allow me to tell you a little bit 
about today's guest. William A. Tiller, Ph.D., was born on September 18, 1929 in Toronto, Canada. He received his doctorate in physical metallurgy at the University of Toronto in 1955. Until 1964, Dr. Tiller worked as a research scientist and advisory physicist at Westinghouse Research Laboratories in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In 1964, Dr. Tiller accepted a professorship at Stanford University in the Department of Material Science, becoming chairman of the department in 1966. Simultaneously, Dr. Tiller began personal investigations of human consciousness and the potential for inner enlightenment through meditation processes. While on a Guggenheim Fellowship and sabbatical to Oxford University in 1970, Dr. Tiller realized that it was crucial for future science that a competent investigator from the United States make a long-term, serious commitment to both experimental and theoretical investigations of psychoenergetic phenomena, an area that was anathema to the conventions of science at the time. Probably still is. Dr. Tiller's scientific experiments led him to the conclusion that human consciousness and intention can significantly influence physical reality. Dr. Tiller has taught graduate-level classes in the areas of thermodynamics, kinetics, phase transformations, and semiconductor processing, supervised over 50 doctoral theses, served on numerous professional and government committees, consulted with many industrial corporations, and published over 200 conventional scientific papers and three books. In his psychoenergetic science field, he has published over 150 scientific papers and four seminal books. In 1992, Stanford University named Professor William A. Tiller as Professor Emeritus of Material Science and Engineering. He is not only a genuine pioneer, but legendary in the field of human consciousness and psychoenergetics. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor William Tiller. Thank you. Happy to be with you. I'm glad. I really look forward to having this opportunity to visit with you, sir. You are indeed a legend in your area of expertise. Well, thank you for that. I'm looking forward to a meaningful discussion with you. Great. Listen, before we get started, we like to get three things from our guest. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? Now, I, you know, I just gave a recitation of a rather lengthy bio, but it doesn't really tell us about the young William Tiller. What on earth was he like? Uh, was he a star student? Did he know very young he wanted to be a scientist? Was he, you know, was he an athlete? Tell us about yourself, sir. Well, um, as a young boy, I was interested in sports and girls. <laughs> and uh, was an average student because I, it was easy. I just didn't make much effort. Uh, when I got to high school, um, I had an inspiring teacher who was in, taught English and French. And I, I felt very drawn him, his name was Dodd, John Dodd, mm-hmm. and he saw things in me that I had not seen and no one else had seen, 
and took an interest. And in return, I thought highly of him and so decided I would like to learn. And when I started to learn, um, I guess I became something close to the best student in the school. And one of the first things that manifested was I turned out to be a poet as a young person up who was also very interested in mathematics and science. Um, my life was very full. From the age of nine, I had a after-school and Saturday job of one sort or another. And uh, I wanted to go to university, um, which, which I did, and uh, started out in... And basically, a branch of physics, um, engineering physics. And as a poet, uh, things worked, worked out pretty well with girls. And uh, my present wife, who has been a wife for 63 years... Wow. Uh, going on 64, uh, fell in love with the poet. But I found that I gave up writing poetry in my 20s, largely because it gave me too much power over people, and I wasn't wise enough to use it properly, at least so I thought. And so I turned into a science and decided to follow that path in life. And that's what led me to, although I was planning to go into nuclear physics, I didn't get a fellowship to MIT that I thought I would get from the University of Toronto. A friend suggested that I go into physical metallurgy because there was a, a really good professor that had come in from England. Well, I decided to do that uh, and thought, well, Later, I'll apply to MIT again. And uh, it turns out it was just like open pit mining to me, the particular project uh, he gave me. I, uh, in my master's degree, I did the theory of the, the work, what became a citation classic. Um, and then in my PhD, went on and did the experimental work that Establish the theory, and uh, I had the opportunity then to uh, give a lecture on my work at in Chicago at a conference, and uh, an assistant of the head scientist at Westinghouse uh, heard it called his, his boss to come and meet me, um, and he invited me to visit. I have been in, invited to other companies to visit. Um, and I felt that uh, rather than General Electric, which was the big 
player in that field. Westinghouse needed my talents. Um, I felt I could grow more there uh, by sort of managing from below, and I built a group of people uh, working in the area of the science of crystallization, which is the main field of my work. And uh, I was very happy there. The uh, company wanted to go up the line in management uh, because I put together a group that was effective, and uh, we were supported by a lot of government contracts. Um, but I thought if I went any higher, I could no longer do my own work, so I better look very carefully at this company. Um, before I made my decision, I looked at the company and decided, well, it why was I still there, and decided to move on. And uh, I looked at other companies, was not particularly happy with how they developed people, and uh, put my grape on the vine to look at universities. I didn't think of myself as a university professor, but I thought, well, I'll look at it. And my wife had always said, Bill, if we have a chance to work in California, I'd really like to move there. And so when Stanford invited me to come and interview, I did and liked it, uh, accepted a full professorship with tenure there and joined them in 1964 on the drive across the country with our two kids squabbling with each other as to who was going to lie in the back window of the car. <laughs> um, my wife said, Bill, when we get to California, let's pull together the spiritual side of our life. I said, sure, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Well, we were very, we had be already learned about uh, some of the, perhaps the greatest psychic of that century, um, and uh, so we went and learned uh, more about that and learned to meditate, uh, looking within. Are you, are you going to name the greatest psychic in your opinion? Um, well, I... I mean, is this Gene Dixon? Is this uh, Ingo Swan? Uh, who are we talking about? Um, you know, I'm now 86, and for the moment, I think of this man as the greatest one to come down the pike. Um, gosh, why don't why don't I remember his name right now? Well, well that's all right. You you remember him. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just, no, no, it's okay. Sure uh, everybody Ingo, out Ingo there Swan is was my best friend. Yeah. Um, one of my best friends. Uh, We'd known each other for a long time. I always thought of Ingo as a Leonardo of our age. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, so we got on very well. I'm sorry that he passed a couple of years ago. Yeah. We, so we all anyway, Ingo, Ingo, as much as I think of him, this is very different man. Let me look in my... 
And I'm going to give you a few minutes to, to look him up because we have a hard break coming up, Dr. Tiller, Professor Tiller, and I don't want to, you know, cut you off. So, yeah, all right, in, 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 in the next four minutes or so during that break, you can find us this uh, best skeptic of, the, of our time, of the last century. We're speaking with Professor William Tiller about his life, his work, research, and his book, Science and Human Transformation. To learn more about Professor Tiller, visit his website at tillerinstitute.com. That's T-I-L-L-E-R institute.com. One word. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicky wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. That delightful arrangement was Dave Brubeck and his quartet performing Take Five. Okay, if you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor William Tiller about his life, work, research, and his book, Science and Human Transformation. 
Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music. Three are their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music, as I point out every week, is more important to us than many recognize. It has awakened forgotten memories and even restored lost states of consciousness. In fact, that whole new field of music psychology is looking into the relevance of music in many areas of human investigations, including aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, Professor Tiller informed us that he just liked jazz and classical music, no particular preference, just, you know. So I took it upon myself to select some jazz. I find it interesting in and of itself, Professor, that you have no favorites at all. But what do you think of my selection? Well, let me go back first. The senior moment was that I left out the name Edgar Casey. Okay, but how could you have trained under Casey in 1966? He was he dead, died of course. in 45. Called, yeah. but, but he was written up as the Miracle Man of Virginia Beach, and right. he had a group of, I think, 13 people in the early 30s um, who lived a particular lifestyle that he proposed, and he wrote two yep. books. Yep. The first one was Search for God, Book One, the second one was Search for God, Book Two. And we had a study group in our home. I learned to meditate using his technique. I found it very valuable for my consulting and as department chair at Stanford to help to nurture young students to talk about what it is they wanted to ask about. You're way ahead of your time. Today, you know, mindfulness, meditation, that's something that doctors, physicians, uh, students everywhere are learning how powerful it was. But you you must have been way ahead of your time back in the 60s introducing that to students at Stanford. Well, I, I, I would introduce it. Stanford was not happy with me um, getting deeply involved with this stuff when I... I had to do all this work outside of the university and the work inside the university. So I had two parallel paths, one which is conventional science, which fed my family, and the other was what I thought was more important in the long run. And uh, so I walked those two paths, the time eventually gave up department chair and a variety of things in order to have time to develop this other path. And there I divided that free time into three boxes. One was continued experiential development of self. The second one was answer the question, how might the universe be constructed to allow this crazy-seeming kind of stuff to naturally coexist with orthodox science. And the third third was to do experiments to keep the theory honest. And I have been doing that for the last 45 years outside of the university. So Were you my raised? goal was to build a reliable bridge of understanding that seamlessly joined with orthodox science, went through the domains of the psyche, 
the domains of emotion, the domains of mind, and the de- was firmly implanted in the bedrock of spirit at the other end of the bridge. And I have been reasonably successful in that process. And yes, the important have. thing is to stretch well beyond the distance time level of reality. Uh, were, were you raised in a religious environment, Professor? Um, my parents were from England, uh, so they were Anglicans. They uh, wanted me to go to church every Sunday when they went. I didn't do, we didn't go all the time. Um, I got to the place where I found that the church was not very competent in understanding nature or in seriously trying to help humanity to uh, grow in understanding and become more conscious. Uh, at a core level, I follow the great commandment, love thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, about as good as it gets. It's as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned because the other is all, uh, it's human invention rather than divine invention. Okay, anyway. I want I want to talk to you today about several different areas of your work. Sure. And, you know, much of it will come from your contribution to the book Conscious Acts of Creation. Yep, and your what, book. That, was the exper- that was the important experimental work, the first, great, first level of it, anyway. It's a great book. It, it, it tends to, for some people to be a little more technical than they want, but yep. I... I found it to be a great book, and it answers a lot of the questions that skeptics aim at you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna discuss some of that too. Yeah, but. please do because I, it was the four target experiments that I ran and proved. It was possible to prove that the Descartes assumption of the 1600s, that no human qualities of consciousness, intention, emotion, mind, or spirit can significantly influence a well-designed target experiment in physical reality is totally wrong in today's world. False. Yep. Yep. And and I want to get to that. I want to talk to you about all of that. Okay. Um, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, well, not a little bit, quite a bit about your your book, Science and Human Transformation, which yeah. I also find to be a great read. And it's not quite as technical. So people, you know, I, I, if you're technically minded out there as a listener, you're going to want both these books. Yeah. Uh, and, but if and, and, the, and the fourth one, uh, Psychoenergetic Science, opens the door to another level of reality. That is that distant right. time um, is well, only one this. half. Let's do this. Let's start with some definitions, if we may, Professor, because okay. you just used Go the term it. psychoenergetics. You know, when you think yeah. about energy, you think about, you know, the laws of energy, you know. Um, yep. But psychoenergetics is not subject to those those same laws that we would find if we were if we were just to be discussing energy. So um, 
how about defining psychoenergetics well, for us? I mean, it, psychoenergetics not... is, really comes from the Russians. They use this word to describe the subtle energy work that they were doing, I think, um, in order to make it sound scientific so that their masters would think they were doing serious work. Um, and it is a good word. It, it, it is reliable. It deals with the human psyche, human intention, um, those qualities of humankind that are gifted to them. Let me give you my sort of opinion. I have a lot of things which I call working hypotheses until I can prove them. Okay. And my working hypothesis is, first, we are all souls, eternal and indestructible, functioning at a level of superluminal information, which means it's invisible to our present eyesight or any of the tools that we presently have. We can perceive the distance-time phenomena, which is all subluminal, at a slower than the velocity of electromagnetic light. And we have, at this point in time, a kind of closure of that, which is really what, once the boson was put in place to define particles and mass, I think it has led to a kind of closure, and I think we're very close to becoming a superluminal species uh, in the next two centuries, which is going to be challenging for people and very difficult for medicine. Medicine, well, the feature that's important to realize is that We humans, although we are primarily souls, the soul needs a bio-body suit to experience distance time. Now, I tend to think of it as our spiritual parents dressed us in these bio-body suits in order to experience distance time reality. In our case, we have and we know about bio-body suits to go down to the bottom of the ocean and explore. Sure. Okay, so I'm saying when we look in the mirror, what we're seeing is our bio-body suit. And we're seeing the outermost one, which is the electric atom molecule one. The next part of that, the other half of that, is the acupuncture meridian system bio-body suit. And that's the one that primarily connects with our soul self. But on the other hand, if, well, the Eastern cultures call it chi, as it flows through the meridians, it induces electric fields in the body, in the outer, outermost body. And so that's where the, the electric nature comes in cells of the body. The acupuncture meridian system itself has no histological evidence in the body. It is this not not cellular, and part of the dilemma is that it appears invisible except that it can introduce these electric currents. That okay. becomes okay. crucial because it's 
superluminal, faster than the velocity of light. That's a working hypothesis. Haven't proven it yet. <laughs> no, you haven't, but that's a very ambitious working hypothesis, additionally, may I say. But uh, I just want to follow the hypothesis. Sure. Uh, because you've also introduced some ambitious hypotheses in the past, and they have you've been able to demonstrate those. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's just accept for the moment that given enough time in your bio body suit uh, within this time dimension that you'd be able to prove this one. Let me let me follow it. You, when you speak of consciousness, you know, we think of brain and, of course, we think of mind at a distance. But what we have in common there is we have activity, uh, neurological activity that we can measure as, as an electrical uh, activity. Yes. How is that a concurrent uh, um, electrical activity to the activity generated by chi? Is it, uh, you know, is this a separate pattern? Uh, I think how do so. they interface? And I, and I think that it's important we talk about it because, although I haven't got proof of it, certainly from the broadcasting of intentions that we've done to enhance uh, stability and progress of autistic children and their parents. Um, we have done experiments to enhance consciousness in groups of children uh, and, and their parents. In fact, 48 children and 58 parents. And we have broadcast the intention to increase their consciousness, that means their awareness of all sorts of things, and also to broadcast first to 33 individuals who are, we don't know the name, and we don't know where they live, but I picked 33 of our of our sort of 50 states of the continental U.S., a little less than 50. Um, and we find that we, and I'm just sort of telling you data, we've used uh, kinesiological techniques to ask the questions um, about the growth of consciousness in the world. And we have found that although we're broadcasting um, this particular intention uh, from our laboratory in Payson, Arizona, we have in the from February 2014 to February 2015 increased the kinesiologically tested intention growth, uh, consciousness growth, in all states of the U.S. by 18 or 19 David Hawkins points of consciousness. Right. And we are seeing that that consciousness is a cloud of it going around the world, and we're seeing again um, increase in consciousness in the U.K., 
in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, in China, um, Russia, Japan, Australia, South America, and they're all in the range of 17 to 22 points in the consciousness scale of David Hawkins. So that's really interesting, and there are a couple of things that are important. Let's go back first to the... Yeah, let me interrupt you a second, because sure, I don't want to get too far away from David Hawkins. I, I, I had uh, Dr. Hawkins on the radio show, and uh, I've, you know, I've read his material, and I've interacted with him a couple of times, well, the late Dr. Hawkins, uh, yep. I should say. Um, and, you know, the kinesiology itself, the muscle testing is what yep. you're talking about, yep. is, is suspect. Uh, in many circles, and I don't consider myself to be a skeptic by any sense of the word, but I know um, because one of my areas of expertise is hypnosis. I did that for years as a forensic hypnotist, yep. uh, practicing criminalistics, that the power of suggestion, you know, I can manipulate those findings very, very easily. It takes very little to uh, change that. that strength test. And and, and Dr. Hawkins, uh, actually, I had him test a couple of things on his show. So he tested, um, for example, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and said it was a miserable, horrible kind of a policy. Uh, I, I think our prejudices can come through. How did you control um, your subjects to see that you we, weren't we in some way? We didn't way... control them. In, in essence, we, as far as the, there are three groups. I call them the alpha group, the beta group, and the gamma group. The alpha okay. group was the child, autistic children. The mm-hmm. beta group were, was the parents. And the gamma group was the unknown folks. The, if we, I basically don't have any verbal contact with the children or the parents or the unknown. Basically, I write an intention statement and I broadcast it um, by, in a, in a shed, scrolling the names and addresses through uh, a laptop computer continuously for a year, and at the same time, in the shed, have it have the a device where I imprint the intention into it with with three other. Uh, is this is this a radio a radionics sort of device, professor? No, it's not. It's it's a simple electrical device in white paper number two on my website tiller.org. I give a circuit diagram, etc. Okay, cool, cool. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. So basically, the I have no personal contact with the children or the parents. Okay. And with the children, we are looking at the what's called the ATEC program in psychology, and that is four pieces to it. The first oh. is is communication skills. Second is sociability skills. The third is cognitive function skills. And the fourth is uh, physical health skills. Uh, free white paper number 3031 on my website describes the experiment okay. and, the, and the data. Um, the, we find that 
the children develop over a year of broadcasting, they they develop enhancement of their abilities in this area with a p-value better than one part in 10,000, which is remarkable data. Yep, yep, yep. And um, it proves itself. Another, I'll, I'll come back to this one again in a minute. This, the second, well, the first one we ever did was to to broadcast 1,500 miles to enhance people's uh, benefits relative to depression and anxiety. Uh, again, that one was successful to p-value better than one part in a thousand after eight months. We are doing a one now which is broadcasting to uh, a group of people to move them away from self-judgment and lack of compassion to becoming self-compassionate and compassionate for others and recognizing that they're all part of the one. So, with again, in that particular case, um, in a six-month program and a 12-month program, the p-values are, are generally better than one part in 10,000. So I'm very robust. surprised at the physics. Really interested, surprised that we can broadcast anywhere in the world just using the name and address of the individual. Um, going to be hard to believe for orthodox science. Um, they... Generally, when someone exhibits interest and asks about the data, as I t start to tell them the experimental results, their eyes start to spin, they get a little glassy, and they almost lose consciousness because it so violates their belief system. That's a fact. You know, we've got another break coming up, yep. Professor. Listen, and when you talk about, well, you, you've touched on a couple of areas. One of your areas of specialty is crystalline structure. But, That's um, like conventional science. Yeah. And, and, but the other one now you're pushing over, and, and it reminds me of Emoto and some of the things that he's done um, uh, if and I, your if criticisms I his, of him. If I when we come back. When yeah. we come back, we'll, right. we'll pick it up right there. Let's talk about that, all right? All right. Okay. If you would like to know more about Professor William Tiller and his research, some of the things that we just discussed, or his books, uh, check it out by going to his website at Tiller Institute, as one word, T-I-L-L-E-R Institute dot com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest discussing a new paradigm in science and medicine. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. 
Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor William Tiller about his life, work, research, and his book, Science and Human Transformation. Now, we just played saxophonist Boots Randolph performing Take the A-Train as our bumper piece. I hope you enjoyed. I've always liked Boots Randolph, and his Yakety Sax album is a great one to catch if you haven't listened to him before. All right, Professor, is it really true you like jazz, but you don't have any favorites? Um, I like them all. The, uh, let me say something about the, just before the, uh, the break. Oh, you, the, okay, we can go to the, that. But Yeah, I just okay, wanted okay. to, to make right. an expansion, slight expansion. That okay. is, it's easier to get access to the all of there's 30, 39 free white papers of things I've written that go beyond the books and it's just go to tiller.org very simple oh tiller.org as yeah. opposed to tiller institute yeah just tiller.org good um, thank you and for that. and the free white papers they're in roman numerals and the one which is I'll just give it you a white paper 36 which is XXXV1. Uh, that the title is "What is Human Consciousness, and How Do We Significantly Increase Its Magnitude in Our World?" And I'm 
it's already up up there, and I'm adding addendums to it from the information that's feeding, being fed back from the experiments we're conducting. And I'm using a couple of David Hawkins students to do the kinesiological work to gather the data. Anyway, I just wanted to put that in before we go forward. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you very much. That uh, you know, and there was there were some questions in our chat room during the break. Uh, I was going to try and answer them, but since you we've we've gone a little backwards, I'll let you handle it. Um, two of the people in our chat room were questioning p values. Do you want to give them a quick oh, explanation the of what a p value, value is, is? Is the statistical probability that the result could occur by random chance? So when you say one in ten thousand, you're saying less than There's one less in ten thousand. One chance in ten thousand right. that this okay. could have occurred. By random chance. Okay, good. All right. Now, also, just before the break, I wanted to turn your attention somewhat to um, Emoto's work. Uh, okay. Again, Lady Modus. Hey, you've been critical of his yes. methodology, and and the, you know, the... my wife is a, is a microbiologist. She spent years looking down a microscope. She tore it apart. I think we'd all like to believe that somehow intention or or words could, you know, influence well, the crystalline yeah, the dilemma, structure. The dilemma is I believe that it can be done, but I, I don't believe that that data shows it. For example, the procedure that he uses in the crystallization process mm-hmm. is to have maybe 35 cups in, in, a, in a system, experimental system, a big box kind of thing, and you put water in that, and you you have, he's saying, you have, you write down a piece of paper, a set of words, and that the freezing process manifests that freezing pattern. Well, the dilemma is, I had in my in the late 50s, I looked very deeply at the freezing of water and much more carefully than his equipment could produce and saw all the, was able to produce all of the patterns that he found in his experimental result. But he's got about 35 little vessels in there, and the system is cooled. Some of them are, are cooling rates a little different than others. And so there's a whole variety of patterns that form. And he picked, my understanding is that he picked the one that best fit the word structure he wrote. Right. And I and I think that's not good science. No, I, I concur. I've seen Dean Radin's replication. I didn't feel that it was a genuine replication no, either. Do he doesn't have the equipment either. Yeah. That's Nor the I experience. Okay. All right. Okay, so we, we can get that one out but, of the way. But, but you me, do but, believe but, that it's possible that, I mean, obviously it's possible because you're doing something very similar to that. I can yeah, remember. Yeah. The intention yeah. that I have for a program, I write, I think about it, and then I write it very carefully, and basically I go into a deep meditative state with uh, three other uh, of my folks, and when we're in a deep state, I read the intention statement, and then we hold it in our mind 
for 15 minutes to a half an hour, and when it feels cooked, we'll use the word cooked, <laughs> then I say, so be it, thy will be done. And okay. It's, a, it's similar in a way to what Emoto does in the sense that he writes it down on a piece of paper. Um, so in essence, I'm getting these remarkable results from all over the world um, with different programs. And yeah. the data, the proof is in the data. Right. You uh, just define, now I, I'm going to slow you up a little bit here, because you just defined intention in a way that I think needs to be fleshed out some. Okay, well, okay. I think, I think intention is very important. Intention is an act of creation. I said in the beginning, okay, let me repeat it. Um, our spiritual parents dressed us in these bio-body suits in order to grow in coherence, in order to develop our gifts of intentionality, and in order to become what we were intended to become, which is co-creators with our spiritual parents. Now, the process, let me give you an example of, of first, the, the coherence aspect. Okay. The Let's take a 100-watt light bulb. All right? It's got a bunch of photons coming out of it, but they're... They're not in phase with each other. They they come out and they interfere with each other. So you get some light, but you don't get a lot of light. However, if you could take the same number of photons coming out per unit time, and you could arrange things so they could come out in phase with each other, such as you have in a laser, then what you find is that the energy density from the same number of photons might be 10 times the surface of the sun. So that's an, an aspect of what coherence means. And as we grow in consciousness as humans, we are becoming more and more coherent. That is, we are looking deep within ourselves. We are looking meaningfully at the universe. And we give things meaning. And we, in so doing, as we practice on ourselves, do more meditation, more inner self-management, we become more and more coherent. So that's important. The second part of growing, developing our gifts of intentionality, that's what we do by using our intention. We use our intention to draw a painting, learn to draw a painting, to learn to throw a football and throw a football effectively, jump over hurdles, write music. We develop our focus of intent to cause something to happen. That's Intention. Doing that makes us grow to become ultimately, after many lifetimes, co-creators with our spiritual parents. Do you so, think... I'm sorry. Go, sorry, no, go ahead. Do you think that it's the difference in intention, how you 
I mean, the way you express developing uh, the statements that you have, cooking them, I like that. That's The way you cook them is entirely different than the way some people go about replicating. I'm, I, again, I'm thinking of Emoto, his rice experiments. There are yep. all kinds of skeptics out there that attempted to replicate this, and uh, and, and they totally failed, and, and they had their explanations for why, you know, you, there could be any kind of growth inside the jar and so forth. But my, my point is I remember that there was a childhood experiment, and I did this once, and it really worked. You know, you took two bean seeds, you you put them in a, you planted them in equal soil in, in the same kind of a container, same kind of a little pot. You labeled one ugly, you labeled the other one, you know, love. Um, you saw that they got the same amount of sunlight, you saw that they got the same amount of water, but one, the ugly one, you talked really bad to every day. You took it off and told it it was stupid and dumb and whatever. Yep. And the other one you took off and you told it these lovely things, you know, yeah. and, and you expressed all the beauty. There was a significant difference 30 days later between the growth of those two plants. Absolutely. But there I'm really expressing my feelings. I'm not just writing something down and pinning it on a jar. Well, the, the issue is that we humans are always radiating what we are. And we have the ability to radiate energies to change things. One of my first experiments in the science and human transformation was to be even, even being inside a Faraday cage to radiate to a little gas discharge system 15 feet away with a Faraday cage around it. Right. You could ignite the dis- discharge. That is, well, what you do is you raise the system to a high voltage, but about 10 volts below the normal breakdown voltage of the gas. But then from your with your intent, you can make it discharge and Instead of having zero counts, you can get 50,000 counts in five minutes. So these are things that we all can do. We all can radiate. We can radiate love to things. We can change things. I mean, my four target experiments were just an illustration that we could do it with things like water, pH going up, pH going down, same type of water, um, a alkaline phosphatase and uh, an in vitro experiment with a, uh, a particular biological material, you can change its chemical activity. And you can do it even with a living system, fruit fly larva. You can change the lifetime of the larva. In normally about 28 days, we did experiments. We were able to increase the energy storage molecule, ATP, to its chemical precursor, which was ADP. That is, you go from two phosphorus atoms to three phosphorus atoms. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a remarkable thing, and we were able to do it with a p-value better than one chance in a thousand. And then we found that the the development of the fruit fly larva was fully developed in 23 days, not 28. Everybody can do it if they try. I mean, um, no, let me go back one step. If one person can do it, anyone can do it. That's my inherent belief system. 
It takes effort. It takes practice. But it's, it's a human quality, a human a, capability. A we lot are of this, so much more than we think we are. Amen. A lot of this is material science. I mean, it, when yes, you, it is. I mean, and, and so... When you advance this kind of work, this this is this is the kind of work that I, I I understand why a Stanford might have a problem with it because of implications and its challenge to the the orthodox model. But it is pioneering work. Uh, it is. And and one of the things that I find, you know, I mean, you you know, you've been criticized. There are lots of, of folks out there. And, and I look at these people, some of them call it, forgive me, but, you know, I, I read one blog by um, a self-proclaimed scientist who was a, who claimed he was a straight-A student in mathematics and calculus and da-da-da. He called you a woo master. And then he went about explaining that, well, forget about his math. The math doesn't matter. And, and, and speaking in... You know, in other words, his attack it was not relevant. He he really didn't understand what you were saying, in, in my opinion. But it's nevertheless, it's nasty. How does that kind of thing affect you, Professor Tiller? Well, I can say in the early days, I was pissed off at my colleagues. Uh, but after a while, I realized they're just being human. The thing is, when you... As you know, academics put a lot of weight on their knowledge. They're not necessarily humans with a great sense of being, but they they really value their knowledge. And when you put something in front of them that seems to violate, not, not violate the knowledge, but expand it in an area that they would never go, and that's what I'm doing. I mean, basically, I'm trying to show that people can do these things and that the universe is much larger than people think. That is, the orthodox science, there's a certain protocol uh, for doing it. But the fact is, nature expresses itself in many more ways than the distance-time view of reality. And my experiments show that there's another level of at least one other significant level in the universe. Let's talk about that. You 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 proposed a higher dimensional level substance. I think you called it yes. deltrons. Yes. And and then now they fall out of the constraints of relativity theory, and they're able to move at velocities faster than the speed of light. Yes. And I and 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 and, 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 and they were like say, a coupling agent between the electric monopole and the magnetic monopoles. Right, that, that's Something the working like hypothesis. That. Yeah, flesh that out for us, will you please? Well, the, the thing that's important about it is it explains... All right, uh, let's see if I can do it simply. The I'm proposing that, and this applies to humankind, as quantum mechanics and such is a second-order partial differential equation. It can do a lot of wonderful things, but it can't touch any of the psychoenergetic phenomena. It can't, can't touch remote viewing, can't touch any of these other things. That, that's a different aspect of nature. And my experiments say the following, that if you, can, if you have a coupler, you can couple between distance-time world, 
and another aspect of nature entirely, which I call in my modeling, I've chosen reciprocal space as the as the other piece. But just for the moment, think of there's there's two pieces, and with the coupler, you can join them. What this means is, let's take one of our distance time experiments or something. Um, let's look at solar cells. Solar cells, depending if you've got a good one, um, the you have a certain conversion, energy conversion yield, okay, so that you can convert sunlight into electricity. Yeah. Now, when you can use a coupler, and, and, and especially if it's a reciprocal space aspect, it turns out that if you know the direct space, that is the distance-time aspect, you can calculate it's reciprocal. People, you call it Fourier transforms. So, so it's mm-hmm. something that, that electrical engineers have done for a long time. I don't want to go into it because it's, it gets complex when you right. start talking about detail. But the principle is the following. It says there are two ways that the normal world looked at distance-time data versus Fourier transform of distance-time data. Um, and just said it was a different way of looking at things. I say, yes, it is that, but you actually have a possibility with a coupler to connect to that aspect of the universe. So what it means that a physical property can have two parts. It can have a distance-time part, and it can have a reciprocal space part. And if you can do the coupling properly, then you're energy conversion yield for solar cells can be changed up or changed down, which means it could perhaps double, which means you can have a much more effective device. But every, I'm saying everything has these two parts. One is faster than light, one is slower than light, and if you don't have the proper coupler, you can't access the unseen one. So what but is if the... you have the proper coupler, you can. And mm-hmm. I think humans, as they develop themselves, they can broadcast that coupler. And so a lot of things in the psychic world are because of the broadcast of this coupler. And it connects them with that other universe, that other aspect. And the more we develop ourselves, the more capability we have. And the data, it seems to me, what you tend to see is that everything becomes more and more connected the more we have the coupler. And it means that in the long run, you cannot do a controlled experiment because everything is connected. You can't shield it. We've never, we have not yet found any way of shielding these energy, this energy or these energies, because I think there are lots of them. And the interesting thing is, when we did the experiment I mentioned earlier of being in a Faraday cage, a human-sized Faraday cage, and also a Faraday cage around the gas discharge device, 
15 feet away, because the intent of the individual can make the gas discharge activate. It seems to me, Professor... Two cages and ignite the discharge. All right, we we've got know a break. experimentally. I don't want you to get booted out, so hold it right there. When we come back, I do want to... I mean, it seems to me that this is coupled with a lot of emotion or something. I'll have you flesh that out. Exactly. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor William Tiller about his research and book, Science and Human Transformation. 
In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor Tiller, we just played Miles Davis performing Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. What do you think of my choices of jazz? I like it. Just keep on keeping on. (laughs) Works for me. Listen, before the break, I, I, what you were talking about, this coupler, kind of had me thinking this way. Is emotion the mechanism, or is there a field of emotion that emotion is connecting to, or how does that work? Well, so far as my working hypothesis is, is that emotion is very important for any fulfillment of any successful intent. You want to give power to your intention to make something happen. We see it all the time with athletes. You know, you've got to give yeah. this stuff emotion. My, it's one of my wife's favorite comments when we sit to imprint uh, or re-imprint a, an intention host device. She says, give it emotion, Bill. Give it emotion. So it, that, that's part of what she does is part of what anyone has to do, even you know, if you're a painter and such, and you want to put your gift on paper, you really have to care about it. You really have to give it your best. That's that's what we all do to be successful in whether it's grade school, whether it's athletics whether it's relationships, etc. Emotion is a, is a key part of this process of, of successful creation. You know, one of the things that made you famous, well, or brought, I mean, you, you're famous in your own right, but made you popular uh, was your appearance in the movie What the Bleep. Uh, yeah, and, so it seems. You know, it was interesting because... They came and knocked on my door one morning, and they shot for seven hours, and they used four minutes. <laughs> yeah. they well, that was, that was a memorable four minutes, a yes, truly memorable four minutes. And, uh, and I'm sure you've, you've heard from the world over about your appearance in that, because, you know, of, of everything that goes on in that film, you carry probably... Well, and, and this is an opinion, but in my view, you carry the weight of the evidence, period, and a quotation. Um, but while we're talking about emotion, I mean, you know, the overall kind of theme in What the Bleep uh, sort of dovetails into this idea that it's also called the secret. That, we uh, that, can... that, one, that one I turned down being part of, and I, I think that... Uh... That's consciousness light. You know, just like light beer. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't think that the see. I thought the secret, they were saying you could do this, like, they gave the opinion, you could do this thing without any effort, without right. any development of yourself, without any go. growth of consciousness in yourself. I don't buy that at all. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. I have blasted that one over and over. So, let me let me see if I can if if what I have in mind fits with your 
experience and your research. If you're going to visualize yourself as a successful athlete, uh, now I've had the opportunity to work with some great ones, including Hall of Famers like Golden Richards, uh, you, and you're going to visualize what you're doing in advance, and you're going to use this visualization to empower your your physiology in a sort of psychoneuro uh, way. Um, you have to pack that up with a lot of emotion. It can. I mean, you have to hear the crowds cheering. You have to feel the goosebumps. You have to be there in order for that to really have any impact on reality. Have I got that right or wrong? I think so. Let me give you what I tell people about uh, this. It's an example of two individuals who are really good at running the low hurdles. Okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's take that as a given. And they both want to learn to run. They want to run the high hurdles just as well. Right. A person A starts, he sets, sets them up. At the, at, at the high hurdle level, and he, he runs, and he knocks them down. And he sets them up again, and he runs, he knocks them down. He sets them up again, he runs, he knocks them down. And he gets the idea he can't do it, and he accepts that he can't do it, and so he quits. Person B takes the low hurdles and just raises them a little bit and runs, knocks it down, but second or third time of running at it, finds that he can do it. And if he keeps on keeping on, then he becomes smooth and beautiful and can do it. And then raises it another increment. Same process, again, again, and does this step by step by step and eventually gets to the high hurdles and after knocking it down a few times, can run it without knocking it down and can be beautiful and smooth in doing the process. The person did it in a sensible way. He raised he raised the attempt slowly and surely, but made sure that it could be successful before moving on. That's how I think humankind should be. That we want to do it, we desire to do it, the more you desire, but you can't you can't jump from one to the other without having done the inter- intervening steps, because although it's always possible, the probability is small unless you build the muscles and the neural structures to make it happen. Right. You know, in your book, Science and Human Transformation, while we're on this subject, you state, and I quote. One way of accelerating the desired transformation in individuals and society is via human energy field interaction. Unpack yes. that for us, will you? Well, in in orthodox science, we have discovered four energies: electromagnetism, gravity, short-range nuclear force, long-range nuclear force. And with those energies, you can do a whole variety of things. And our present technology deals with this. And even then, most of it is just with electromagnetism. I think there are probably hundreds of what I call subtle energies in in nature. Again, a working hypothesis. Mm-hmm. The one I showed 
with with the gas discharge experiment uh, in the Faraday cage. The Faraday right. cages helped prove that it wasn't electromagnetic because electromagnetic would have been uh, blocked by the electric circuits right. in the Faraday cage. So what I'm talking about is the next level of adventure for humankind. It's all in the, all a great adventure. And we're going to go beyond space-time phenomena to include this next level of reality that I've talked about, that I've proposed a coupler for it, and that the coupler can come out of humankind, something we can create within ourselves. Um, and when I imprint an intention, that coupler appears to be there, especially during the imprinting process. And uh, I indicate that I think the unseen level of consciousness in the universe is involved in this process, and that they're the heavy lifters, uh, but we're important. We humans are important in this whole process. Uh, for whatever reason, um, although what I think of as these beings have the capability of doing it, they need a human to, I guess, make it sanctified in in this world. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting process. There's an awful lot we have yet to learn. We know the human consciousness, it can probably handle maybe 50 bits of information a second, uh, whereas the unconscious seems to be able to handle more than 50 million bits of information yep. per second. Therefore, we're mostly unconscious beings. And the conscious, the unconscious feeds information to the conscious in little kernels along pathways that the conscious has given meaning to. If it doesn't give meaning to a thing, the unconscious doesn't feed it. That's my opinion, anyway. Okay. My working hypothesis. While we're while we're on that subject, you know, if you look out into the world, and, and first of all, I love your worldview, sir. I mean, you're on record as believing that the only real asset a nation has is its people, yes. their skills, ethics, efforts, and so forth. But when we look out into the world today, you know, we see all this atrocity going on. It's just, yep. you know. Um, and we and we see a, a worldview that seems to be developing among many that I guess you just call cultural relativity. It's just well, you know, that's what yeah. what's normal and ordinary in that society. So who are we to judge it? And we we see this new age parlance that also comes along and and argues things like, oh, the bad guy just made a deal in heaven to be the bad guy to teach you forgiveness, kind of stuff. Um, and I and I'm sorry. I guess I'm just going to say I I reject that, but I you may not. Uh, where I'm going is this: when when you see what's happening in the world, and then you try to live a conscious life, and yet you recognize that so much of your conscious activity is really 2020 hindsight on something that's already been decided in your unconscious. 
I mean, that's what fMRI studies are showing us. Six seconds yep. before you know what you're going to decide, that MRI tech knows what your choice will be. You know, uh, what would you say is our single best way to make the unconscious conscious or to make the conscious, you know, to create the kind of consciousness we want and, and to produce the kind of world that is free of some of this uh, crap, these atrocities, yeah. Um, okay, I think this is a very important issue. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm really focused on trying to raise the consciousness of the world using our broadcasting techniques, and we're being successful with that. I want to say something about the back to the autistic children and the parents. Okay. Um, David Hawkins, in his book, uh, Power Versus Force, which was published, I think, in 95, and probably written five years before, something like that, I suppose. Um, he said at that time that a person could only grow in consciousness five points in a lifetime. Well, 30 years later, with this work that, and I have a high regard for David Hawkins, but he doesn't have to be correct all the time, or... It may be that the world has been changing a lot because with our autistic children and their parents, in February 2014, their, the parents had a David Hawkins uh, kinesiological scale number of something like 330, and the children were something like 325. Um and of the children, um, 5% of them were at the scale of 500 or above. And 500 is an important number because that's the beginning of unconditional love in consciousness. And the parents actually had 7%. Um, <clears throat> but by with, with this broadcasting to them for a year, uh, so t- so February 2015, it turns out their numbers were up a hundred points in the David Hawkins consciousness scale, mm-hmm. and 25 percent of the children were above 500, and 33 percent of the parents were above 500. So the, collectively, the sort of 108 people were 30 percent above 500 unconditional love. Now, David Hawkins said one other thing which I found very interesting. That is, he said if there are 14 people with a consciousness number above at 700 or above, then that was equivalent to one avatar at 1,000. And I thought, boy, if, if I've been this successful to get so many people above 500 in one year... Yeah, yeah. If I keep doing this and, and the physics is appropriate, then maybe I can get a whole bunch of people above 700 and well, provide several avatars effectiveness in our world. That's really I, worth doing. And so I'm really interested in that aspect of people, of lifting people to higher levels of consciousness in a serious way, so we can have big factors 
and and have more and more people move above 500 and move to perhaps above 700 and really change this world. That's in incredible a work. Way. Incredible work, and I wish you all the best of luck. But, you know, holding on to intention of love is held out by some to be, you know, kind of a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. So I, I'm going to look for some clarification here. Because well, I, I think the issue that's important, I think it's a mistake to think of the see no evil, hear no evil. It's just reality. We're all evolving. I'm like you in the sense that I... I'd like to give people hope, and I like, I'm optimistic, of course. Um, but to try to give your best to the world, I think that's a big thing. And I think there's possible, if we begin to look at new science and new possibilities, that we can make a big change. And the point I want to insert is, <clears throat> since I think that our numbers are correct, and David Hawkins' numbers were correct in his day. It means things are changing very rapidly, very rapidly. And I think in this century, we are going to see transitions into the superluminal realm. And I think the autistic children are already there. And by the end of the next century, perhaps we'll all be superluminal and not subluminal as we are now. So if, if just, just think of this for a moment. If we can tentatively use it as a working hypothesis that may be a fact, and if it is a fact, then people are going to start seeing superluminal phenomenal phenomena in the middle of their normal subluminal phenomenal phenomena. And they're going to, be very scared. They're going to wonder what's going happening, and they're going to wonder if they're going crazy. And then they're going to go to a doctor, and a doctor's going to say, "I don't know what you're talking about." Or take this because in. all doctors are seeing at the moment is just the electric atom molecule level of the bio body suit. Mm -hmm. So they have to learn about the superluminal part of the bio body suit. And, and understand these things so that they can ultimately serve their job as a doctor, being meaningfully addressing the problems of expanding humans. I think we're going to have very great challenge in this century and the next century. And it's going to take every bit of optimism and effort on our part to come to peace with our larger self. Because we're, I think, my working hypothesis, we are rapidly moving towards that kind of future. Well, I certainly hope that you're correct. You know, the conclusion of your book, Sciences and Human Transformation, you state that we're both stewards of ourselves and steward of our planet. Yes. We have about one more minute. How should we be conducting ourselves if we want to behave in a way that maximizes our experience and protects our planet? I think we have to care. We have to believe it's possible. 
and we have to make efforts to become more inner self-managed. Meditative processes, going within, recognize ourselves as part of the larger one, and work to lift everybody, and be willing to cooperate, and not be so greedy. I mean, our political scene is is a disaster, as far as I can see. Amen. And the only way to do it is to grow in consciousness and lift others, help others, because then you help yourself. All right, Professor Tiller, I want everyone to know how they can learn more about you, what your websites are, where you publish your data, and how to get your book. So please, in 30 seconds or so, share that with us. Well, you can go to my website, which is www.tiller.org. There, the books are there. You, you, you can purchase them via PayPal. Um, there's a DVD, a seven-hour DVD there. There will be more DVDs. Um, there, there's the free white papers. They're for everybody to read. They can copy them, share them. Um, I think we are remarkable beings, and we're moving forward into that role in the universe. And we have so much more to learn, but we have to be willing to get outside of, or at least let our consciousness get outside of distance time. Look All to right. The... I want to thank you again for all of your work, Professor Tiller, and for your willingness to share it with us. Thank and you, I suggest Will. to everyone out there, you know, do go to his website and do read these white papers. Uh, it's, you know, it may challenge what you've been taught, but when you're all said and done, it says what it says in hard data. Okay, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest once again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.